Commercials, no subscriptions, no network, no rules, and at the end of the day, my friends, no comparison. Uh, we're going to do an episode tonight that I've been looking forward to doing for quite some time. Uh, back in, I guess it was October now, yeah, back in October, it's hard to keep track nowadays with the way things are going, but back in October, I had the pleasure of uh, traveling down to Nashville for the Strange Realities Conference that was put on by the folks at Conspiranormal. Uh, and while I was there, one of the folks I got to meet was this gentleman we're going to be talking to tonight on the program. Uh, and I was just blown away by him. I was just completely he, – he gives off a, a real sense of, like, love and light and, and just a sweet, sweet dude and, and really fun to talk to and somebody that I want to get on the Banal of America show here to uh, introduce to the listeners who may not have heard from him before. And he's done some amazing stuff uh, – one thing I'm dying to get into, which we're going to get into in a little bit after we talk about the new book, is uh, that he's, he was a part of a team of researchers. Uh, I don't even know the whole story yet. I kind of like purposely avoided, have avoided getting the whole story so far. But he was involved in deciphering the Georgia Guidestones, where they came from and all that stuff. So, and, 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 and when I tell people this, they're like shocked because uh, everyone seems to think it's a mystery. But it seems like the case is where he will close. We're going to get into that. We're going to talk about his new book. Uh, where do I have it here? His new book, Two Masters and Two Gospels. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, you know, his career here in the paranormal and the uh, and the esoteric. He's been around for a long time. He is, of course, the incomparable Dr. Future, J. Michael Bennett. Welcome to the show, Dr. Future. Thanks for doing the uh, program. Well, what's the word, Thunderbird? There you go. See what I'm talking about, folks? We're going to get along like peanut butter and jelly here. This is going no, to be fun. No, it's wonderful to be on with your highness. It's <laughs> wonderful. I've been wa- My reputation I've precedes wa- me. Yeah, I've been wanting to get on the BOA talking about the NWO. There you go. Nice. Excellent, excellent. Now let's start out with the standard uh, Banal of America kickoff question here. Who is Dr. Future, J. Michael Bennett? Give us a little bit of the bio, the background, and fill us in on how you became Dr. Future. What's the what's that all about? Well, I would normally people ask me that that are strangers, I'd say, why do you want to know? But uh, assuming that you're cleared, um, I will say <laughs> that uh, I'm 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 sort of half left brain, half right brain kind of guy, and 
uh, you know, one side pays the bills and the other side has my passions. And I know probably a lot of your listeners the same way. Um, what they moonlight is what the passion is. Uh, my background is in science. I have a Ph.D. in engineering from the University of Dayton, Ohio. Uh, worked for the military industrial complex. Had a bunch of interesting experiences there, uh, including uh, had the Carlisle Group uh, interested in buying one of my inventions one time and going there and briefing them there right in front of the Capitol next to Colin Powell's office and uh, oh, wow. Jim Baker. and Yeah, a lot of interesting Got to do a lot of stuff in Russia right after the wall came down and got smuggled into a secret city um, and forgot to tell anybody I was going over there. I was in the back of an army truck smuggled in. But uh, oh it just had some, some wild stuff uh, that went on uh, pertaining to that. But uh, my background's in engineering. I uh, grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, raised in a very traditional kind of Bible Belt kind of world and culture. Uh, ended up in Nashville after I got my PhD. Um, Mrs. Future said uh, she wanted to head back down to the south. And so this is about as north as we ended up uh, right here. And I had already hung out a shingle and sold a bunch of patents that I had developed. I, I worked in the Air Force Research Labs blowing up airplanes, shooting them up, and uh, designing weird James Bond kind of gadgets to put out fires and explosions. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's what I did, shoot up airplanes, uh, like first F-22 fighter and a bunch of other aircraft, and uh, made mannequins to, so I could shoot them up and see how they got, you know, hurt and all that kind of thing. And uh, so anyway, I sold some patents to some different companies and got it in different markets like NASCAR, where they were using it to keep the fuel tanks from exploding, and on TV, and I set up some rocket sled tests with a little device to keep police cars from blowing up when they got rear-ended and got that on TV got Ford coming after me for it, uh, but they were used anyway, and uh, got got something right now that's now uh, sold it to the Canadians, and now it's in Latvia uh, to uh, use rockets to put out fires in buildings, but that's really not what I've really been involved in for over a decade. Um, 2005, I saw an ad in the paper during about the six weeks I actually got a newspaper. Uh, that they were starting a new community radio station in Nashville called Radio Free Nashville. And on a lark, I threw in a proposal. Never had done radio other than I sat in on a little black gospel radio station in Louisville while I was in college for a short while and uh, put in a proposal for a show called Future Quake. And to my shock, uh, they accepted it uh, with no experience and uh, went on the air the first week. And that was on the air for about seven years. And had some really interesting people on. One of my very first guests was Alvin Toffler, the one of the original futurists that wrote Future Shock and uh, um, sort of yeah. really defined the field. And uh, I had people like Andrew DiPolitano, um, Alex Jones, I had on my show, uh, Jesse Ventura, uh, a number of people in paranormal world like Linda Moulton Howe. Um, after about three years, um, my show went in a direction, and I wasn't sure it was really in tune with the station itself. So uh, I ended up on another station, and it sort of freaked those people out because it was a Christian radio station, but I was talking about far-out things. And it was yeah. on a regional. I covered the whole region. Sort of right after they had uh, they had a lot of, uh, uh, what would you call it, neocon content. And then we sort yeah. of had a debunkumentary every day before they signed off every day. 
And uh, it just, we grew. We had about, I think, all in all, about 70,000 listeners, Future Quake. But there, one gentleman, I don't know if you've ever talked with him, Ray Boucher, the ufologist. No. Does that name ring a bell? Ray Boucher no, was no, one of the big or, or, original ufologists that was really well published in journals and was well yeah. known. In fact, uh, Linda Moulton Howe was one that wrote about him and mentioned about some experiences he had. And I was able to track him down. And um turned out he had been, he was a, a priest at the time, not a Catholic, but the Protestant priest. But had, in his ufology days or, or shortly afterwards, he had been pursued by the government, uh, some Defense Department and other people who had been doing experiments and magic, black magic stuff, and came oh, wow. and met with him. And they felt like there had been some of their contractors that had actually been possessed and had come to him to know what to do. And oh it was hard to believe, but once I got all the government documents from him that I still have, I realized they were authentic. I mean, because I had worked in the field for 16 years in government work, and a yeah. uh, very legitimate guy. But it's something I recommend they go on the futurequake.com archives, take a listen. But but simultaneous with that, I found out Nick Redford was going down a, a path in his book Final Events. Uh, oh yeah, and I'm about, with that. talking about the yeah, and talking about the uh, the elite. Well, Collins Elite, I think was their name, and. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, that path, one of the beginning of that path, also went through Ray Boucher and then on to Offutt Air Force Base and out in New Mexico, which used to be one of my other haunts. I used to do a lot of work. In fact, uh, uh, one of my first events like that that got me in this direction was out at the Ancient of Days Conference at Roswell, right at the 50th anniversary uh, of the, the Roswell. Excuse me, no, it was Saying it was 2005, so that would have been a little later than that. Excuse me, but anyway, it was yeah, on the day to run. But, uh, but yeah, that's that's some of the uh, ways I've bumped shoulders uh, with this topic, and people who have all sorts of different angles of why they're interested in the topic. And uh, uh, so weirdness has always been something that never seems to leave me, whether it's strange conspiracy theory stuff or ufology um, or all points in between. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, well, how did you – we didn't answer the question, though. How did you get the name Dr. Future? Oh, that's a very, very complex and, and very in-depth Uh-oh. metaphysical answer. Uh, we were going on the air with about three minutes to go on the air, and the staff <laughs> there, it was all seat of the pants. You know, It was all like plywood sitting there using the, the board and everything. They said, oh, you need to come up with a name. They prefer you have another name, radio name, because of weirdos and stuff, you know, that will chase you down and stalkers, which little did I know that weirdos would be what I would count on for an audience for the rest of my life. And uh, so Dr. Future <laughs> basically came about literally seconds before I went on the air for the first time. There you go. All right. So so that's how deep – that's how deep – you know, when you have Future Quake, you need somebody with a little bit of respect. So um, – my co-host at the simultaneously became Tom by or excuse me Emmett uh, from uh, Back to the Future, and uh, he's still knocking around with me right now, 15 years later, uh, as well as our later co-host uh, Tom Bionic. There you go. All right, all right, that makes sense then. Um, so let's talk about the new book because uh, it's it's interesting. I'm trying to kind of get an, a feel. Sort of for what your you mentioned the New World Order earlier, um, and and I'm reading the back of this book. It seems like you're 
I feel like you're kind of suggesting we're, there's a there's a sort of uh, there's a sort of war on going on here. Uh, you know, a battle of good and evil unfolding uh, in our midst before our very eyes. Um, but but I want to know. You know, that's just sort of my impression. That's my feeling yeah. from looking at the stuff. So what? What? Tell me about the new book. Let's start there. Two masters and two gospels. Give me sort of the elevator yeah. version of what what this book's all uh, about. Yeah, I'll give you the elevator talk. Um, really, it's an attempt, just like my Georgia Gadstones uh, documentary, it's an attempt to solve a mystery. And the mystery impacts all of us, no matter what kind of background, uh, particularly if you're, your audience that's, that lives in America. It particularly affects them, but it, but it even more so affects people of my cultural background. Um, I mentioned before I was raised in the Bible Belt, uh, was raised, you know, one of those church-going folk, you know, every time the door's open, you know, don't drink, yeah. just smoke or chew or run around with those who do kind of crap. And um, <laughs> so, you know, that's that's sort of a, a mindset that I'm familiar with. I've always been interested in spiritual things and it's been an important part of my life. But what I have found when I'm – and I live here right in the buckle of Bible Belt here in Nashville uh, and around people like that all the time is that when we talk about the issues of the day, and I don't know if you've noticed, but in the last few years, in 2020, it seems like there's a few issues that have come up that are significant. I don't mean to yeah, exaggerate, but it seems like things might be just a wee bit even more intense than normal. And, Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah. I think if I can envision most of your listeners' uh, Thanksgiving dinners and when family get-togethers and the fireworks that happen, well, it's no different in, in my household and extended family than anybody else. And and things are just getting really intense, sort of like the old Repo Man movie, you know, uh, getting yeah. in and out of intense situations. And uh, what what I found is when I would get in these real detailed discussions about the things that are of concern of all of us, what I would find is these people who are what I would call church folk uh, would never even mention stuff about what I knew that was in the Bible. But what they were talking about were, I recollect, as talking points. And they were really yeah. talking points that I knew for sure were on the radio on the regular talk radio, and I just found it curious, as, as important as their faith was to their life, that it seemed like their main arguments on how they looked on the stuff that mattered was was from stuff that I knew they were getting off the radio or cable news. And so when I started looking into it, I realized it was just a pure numbers game, that, you know, they might hear something, you know, about the Sermon on the Mount or something, you know, in the Bible for 20 minutes on a Sunday, but the rest of the week they're getting another gospel, you know, down their throats from yeah. an hour commute every day. Uh, they come home and eat, turn it on when they're watching their news. And so I started looking at it as an explanation of why is their thinking and their intensity so different. And so right. that's that's one part of it. But the thing that was really chilling and I think would be interesting to your audience is that I have developed a real love of history and particularly hidden history. Uh, stuff that mm-hmm. defines the world we live in and nobody seems to document. And so the main heart of the book is when I start digging in to how this came about and how did people who walk under this moniker of, you know, the godly or the clergy or whatever like that, how did they get this thing that was really a message that's just a pro-big business, pro-Wall Street, wealth class thing, right. but somehow homogenized it. And so that took me into 
how that all started coming about. And it really started around the end of the 1930s with a gentleman who was the, the first prosperity gospel preacher. He's been forgotten by the pages of time, but he's one of the most influential people in America in the 20th century and, and even today. His name was uh, Reverend James Fifield out in Southern California, and uh, he got hooked up with the National Association of Manufacturers. And, yeah. they, and these folk were desperate to try to come up with a better PR message to get America back on their side because America was still going through the throes of the Depression, and the public was still blaming the greedy big business for having gotten them in that mess. Yeah. And so they were spending all sorts of money trying to fix this stuff. And meanwhile, this guy waltzes in their midst and gives them the secret answer to how they're going to solve it. And that's yeah. what began to define our history. And, and the, the movement that they started and the people who bankrolled it not only changed how we looked at money and wealth and basically the taking care of people and that kind of thing, but they brought in an esoteric faith and an esoteric viewpoint right under the nose of these very, very conservative believers that to this day they do not realize the influences that they had that are something very, very different than what we consider a classic fundamentalist uh, Christianity. What are the esoteric ideas? Well, to understand that that the uh, actual um, initiative they started, when James Fifield went to the National Association of Manufacturers, he said, you know, there's only one institution in our society that still has any respect anymore, and that's the clergy. People trust the clergy will give them the straight story. And they said they're ripe for the picking. And so um, J. Howard Pugh, I don't know if you're familiar with him, founder of Sunoco, um, he's the guy that's founded the Pugh Charitable Trust. Probably a lot of people heard of that. You know, He, yeah. he was one that sort of kick-started kick Christianity today. He was the main guy, the main uh, robber baron. They threw most of the money behind this, but you had a lot of your main Fortune 500 companies and industrialists put major money into targeting all our clergy with this pro-big business message, very uh, yeah. anti-New Deal, anti-government. Um, they started dallying in libertarianism and trying to co-opt that for their own purpose. Of course, libertarianism has always been sort of a, a party organ for big business, but uh, you know, the guys of freedom is the guys of, of no environmental regulations or worker rights or things like that. Right, but right. They, they yeah, found yeah. the religious element was the way to sell it, and our clergy never knew what hit them. And before they were done, within a few years, not only did they have a large portion of the entire clergy reading and then preaching their stuff, they were even having sweepstakes where if you preached a sermon that – that uh, big business was the saviors of society, you'd win a $5,000 cash prize. Oh, wow. And so, so they really became what we would call force multipliers in military parlance, um, yeah. where they were using these clergy, and these clergy were uh, teaching all their parishioners to basically hate the poor, people who were downtrodden, um, uh, distrust anything about the government. Anything that the government did at all was wrong. Uh, it was evil to provide assistance for people. Uh, our worker jobs, jobs programs were evil. Uh, all this kind of stuff was just basically written from a, pl- a plain sheet of paper. But as, as I mentioned in my book, this, this actually has gone on for a long time. 
where yeah. the faith community has been co-opted for other agendas. Um, right, right. Know, I was going to say, like, I, I'm not a history buff by any means, but, it, yeah. like, hasn't – Hasn't the church always kind of like been mixed up with kings and and the the, uh, the elite of uh you know, you know that society that kind of thing? Isn't that always kind of the weren't they always kind of intertwined and and mixed up in a lot of that stuff? Well, it only it really only goes back to the time of Constantine and three thirteen A.D. So it only goes back that far. But oh, uh, okay. three thirteen, yeah, yeah. So it's a more recent <laughs> phenomenon, but. Before that time, uh, people like that were poor. Uh, they were outsiders. They were minorities. Uh, they had no rights, uh, and everybody loved them. And in fact, when there was persecutions that happened, the regular common folk in Rome or uh, Athens or wherever would hide people uh, to protect them because they were generally seen as, as good, decent folk. But suddenly they got money. They got money. They started building big churches. And then with Constantine, he had some kind of weird vision. And at this point, he thought, well, I can be a pagan and be a Christian, and he saw it as a way to unify the empire. And when he started doing that, then he said, we got to standardize the belief system, and so then they started having councils like Nicaea, anathematizing people, and the rest is history, as you were saying. But the 20th century provided all sorts of new tools. Uh, with right. mass media, you had new wars, and, and one of the key things that people don't aren't aware is that a lot of what we hear, in fact, you can hear it on certain cable channels, about the original godly heritage of America and George Washington on his knee praying and all this stuff. A lot of that was, was engineered in a boardroom meeting held by our government that had CIA officials and had propaganda officials from World War II and others, and they started from a clean sheet of paper and yeah. started writing something for a short-term political goal and, and when they came out of that room, they had a back-engineered religious history of America. And the people that they brought in were the ones who were running the propaganda department of the of World War II operations. Um, now, Doctor Future, I'm losing you a little bit. Did you move the uh, phone or something? Are you still there? Like you're cupping the phone. Yeah, yeah, are yeah. You still just sounds like you're cupping okay, the phone. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I'm still. Are you still there? Well, it, it could be. Maybe I'm just getting worked up. Um, there you go. Uh, no, no, it sounded like you were cupping the phone, but uh, you know, it was, it was well, like it could be. I know there's no cu- no cupping allowed on here. No. If I remember no, an old no, friend's episode, that was that was bad. Um, a, a couple of the organizations that they started that I think you'll be very interested in. Uh, by the way, uh, J. Edgar Hoover was in the middle of this. Uh, mm-hmm. Senior clergy officials, um, and what they decided was was that if if they didn't get religion involved, that people were going to find communism more interesting or preferable over capitalism. That was how confident in capitalism they were, and this was during the Truman administration. And oh, wow. so they decided yeah, – yeah. And, and what they did when they got together is they finally released a report on their action plan. Um, this was like right around 1950, and it was called uh-huh. One Nation Under God, and that's where that whole slogan came from. It said that there's a need to weld religion to democracy, and we need to do public comparisons between the Bible and America's most sacred national documents. And so they started oh, wow. from scratch trying to put this stuff together. Uh, this to, was to like try, in the 30s, to to, you say? This was around 1950. Okay, and most I'm of sorry, the things right. that we can 
that we consider have gone around for, you know, time immemorial, all were birthed around that period of time. All the stuff about wow. putting in God we trust on our coinage, on documents, um, adding one nation under God and the statue, all of that was done um, right at that time. Because in their so one in nation the, under uh, God isn't like one nation under God isn't doesn't have like a two hundred some year history. You say no. I always figured no. that was just part of like you know that, that no. it was probably in the Constitution somewhere. I haven't read that. It was a product <laughs> of a post product of a post war boardroom meeting that wow. had Fortune five hundred leaders. It had some senior clergy officials, and it had some of our top propaganda officials. That were involved That's in it. Wild. For example, they like for example when they changed the national motto to "In God We Trust," the mm-hmm. the the House the House of Representatives report sa- said that it had appropriate psychological values. Jesus. A- at the same t- at the same time, they started a program to make mandatory military training for every eighteen year old in America. Not not even a draft. They were just going to auto you know automatically put everybody through. And they started a, a pilot plan, and what they wanted to do was to make what they called religiously grounded soldiers. And they put them through this thing in Fort Knox, which is not far from where I grew up, um, where they basically indoctrinated them with about six or seven hours a day of pretty intensive religious training and yeah. basically didn't allow them off base. They didn't have anything else. And and the purpose was to make it basically a holy war, the the, the Cold War holy war. But but when it really gets pretty dark is when you find out things like he set up in 51, what was called a psychological strategy board uh, mm-hmm. that had the CIA, the Department of State, and Defense, whose role was to figure out the potential role of religion in psychological warfare. And Weird. the report stated that the potentialities of religion as an instrument for combating communism are universally tremendous. Religious is an established force which calls forth men's strongest emotions, are objective in seeking the use of religion as a Cold War instrumentality should be the furtherance of world spiritual health. And it it gets worse from that. I mean, they form groups as the Ideological Subcommittee on the Religious Factor uh, that also was supposed to do this. They got the National Education Association on board. And then they started really getting Wall Street... And uh, Fortune 500 companies to start selling this. And the main guy behind a lot of it was a guy by the name of Charles Wilson, who was the president of General Electric. Yeah. And he was the one to take this on to get Hoover involved and to have nonstop television programs. They had something like 300 television programs on this mobilization. And, and the same guy, Wilson, a lot of people, that name doesn't ring a bell. He was the guy who was pretty much single-handedly running our country. In the early 50s, because Truman had turned over the keys to our entire industry to Charles Wilson to run, it basically they created an emergency police state where yeah. they the government took over all of the industry, you know, ostensibly for the Korean War, but they right. treated it as if we had some existential threat. Of course, not a single one of those troops ever set foot on our country. I mean, there there was nothing that was. I mean, obviously there was. Combat on the other side of the world, you know, right. in one small footprint of area. But he actually uh, had had uh, taken over the entire industry, something they called the Economic Stabilization Agency. 
So um, I, I I don't you know unless you want to talk more about this, I just want to make no, no, it no, clear that to, there is I'm a about history. To here. Okay. So, but yeah, what the, I'm the, interested the, in the in history sense, of the, it being co-opted. Gotcha. Yeah. I think we've got that. Yeah. Um, what uh, I I guess it's impossible to really know, but I mean, is this a case of overzealousness, like uh, like extreme religiosity? Or is it simply uh, – it sounds more like from what you're saying that it's maybe sinister people who are just using religion as a weapon or as a, as, you know, as a, as a control mm-hmm. mechanism, if you will. Well, you know, I'm a person of faith. I believe it has mm-hmm. real merit and value, and it does to me. But the better something is when it's wrongfully used, the darker and worse it becomes. And the, the key is, is when something is used – for, I mean, we all see the televangelists on TV and the Jimmy Swaggers that we know how evil that is, and it's pitiful, right. and people are exploited and get disillusioned. It's yeah, depressing. like those people. Yeah, yeah, because you know, I think the same thing about like those people. Like, there's a show on HBO, a great show, Righteous Gemstones. It's like a par- It's a satire right. of these people, the super, the mega church people. I'm not, right. They don't really have those as much where I'm from. I think down where you are, they're more right. they're more prevalent. These super churches, but. Right. If anyone's yeah. ever seen any of those things, that's staggering. Uh, it's just, yeah. uh, it's, yeah. you know, Make that's kind of what makes me. What I hear, like they have malls and food courts and everything else outside their, you know, sanctuary. The the problem is, I feel like there's something real to be contributed, but when when people, particularly for a profit motive, take things over mm-hmm. or some other agenda, and e- even even most of these wars have ultimately a profit motive uh, that goes to it. Yeah. Um, that that is something that should infuriate not just people who are non-religious, but it should really infuriate the people who are sincerely that way. But for your audience and what I know their interest is, I want to tell them about some of the esoteric, rather bizarre background of the people who set this stuff up. Yeah, um, let's hear it. The 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 one of the main. Uh, periodicals that was used for decades to help do this anti-New Deal, anti-worker uh, protection, anti-environment uh, kind of thing, um, you know, no no government kind of thing, uh, with the help of a lot of libertarian icons, people that uh, – if people have followed libertarian things, they would know a Leonard Reed of the Foundation of Economic Education, guys like uh, Milton Friedman or Murray Rothbard or people like that. But um, one of the main gurus they brought in was a gentleman by the name of Gerald Hurd. Have you ever heard of Gerald Hurd? No. You're teaching me all kinds of names tonight. Gerald Hurd is another one of the key gentlemen that is one of the most influential men in the 20th century in America. Yeah. And he became the guru of this Faith and Freedom newsletter and their organization, Spiritual Mobilization, and f- from J. Howard Pugh to the whole Rat Pack of industry that was running this religious front operation, they became yeah. gurus of Gerald Hurd. Now, Gerald Hurd was from England. Uh, he was a little bit older than Aldous Huxley, but uh-huh. they became fast friends. And um, Gerald Hurd was seen as something of a genius, a metaphysical genius. Yeah, he was raised, and it's very interesting to to understand what motivated him and how he operated. 
he was raised evidently in a in a somewhat strict religious environment. Yeah. Yet he came from a family of Anglican priests, and they thought he would be groomed for it. But later you find out that he had some inklings more on uh, like homosexual tendency, uh, yeah. same-sex proclivity. And obviously in, you're talking about the beginning of the 20th century. That did not go well in their right. proper culture in England. And so, but he made his way to London eventually, sort of swing in London of that era, and into the literary artistic crowd. And he became a big sensation uh, in that crowd. People like W.H. Alden and other famous writers of the day, uh, who also were homosexual, uh, he, he sort of found his niche uh, in that. But but what he had found before, I guess he was, he was probably a... Um, a quiet boy. I don't know if effeminate would be the right word, but he probably was not a real aggressive kind of kid like they raise in the British school systems. Uh, aggressive. Yeah. And so they threatened, you know, bullies would come get him and things. And so what he found was that if he started telling really tall tales, they would leave him alone. Huh. And he wrote in his memoirs that when, when he would really tell, make big whoppers and big stories, he actually was not only left alone, but he had some little measure of respect. And I think that influenced the rest of his life because um, he became observed as like a major mystic. And he he also became the main science uh, um, presenter for BBC. And in fact, wow. uh, So is this kind of like like an Alan Parsons thing, like sort of how there was sort of people who had a foot in both worlds of science and the occult? Uh, oh, definitely, definitely. In fact, he's one of the ones. Gerald Hurt is one of the ones that probably most uh, connected science and spirituality uh, known for. It. Yeah. In fact, H.G. Uh, Wells on the record said he was the only guy that Gerald Hurt was the only guy he would listen to on the BBC because H.G. Huh. Wells was amazed at the genius of Gerald Hurt and his metaphysical understanding. And um, Aldous Huxley was really wowed by him. Uh, they were both pacifists. And and were very much involved in it. And when war was on the forefront in uh, uh, Britain, they made a beeline on a ship uh, to come to America. So Gerald Gerald uh, Heard brought his. He said had sort of a younger partner uh, who was a, who was an heir to a large fortune who bankrolled him. And then Aldous and his wife and son came over on the ship together. And uh, uh, Gerald Hurd had been offered a position at Duke University, which somehow didn't come about once he got there. But they wanted to go see – I believe the name was J.H. Stein, who I think Mm -hmm. is one of the real founders of parapsychology, one that came up with the ESP cards and things like that. Yeah, yeah. And so they they went to meet with him. They they went to meet with some famous psychics because all of this sort of merged together in their interest in Britain that were famous in America. and uh, uh, I think the woman who said that she was reincarnated is Bridie Murphy. Does that name ring a bell with you? Uh, not off the top of my head. Yeah. Well, if you look up Bridie Murphy, she uh, this was one of the first people who said that they'd had a past life that became famous. And this is some uh, uh, Irish yeah, woman. Yeah, I have her here on the thing. Yeah. Came back. Yeah, Bridie Murphy. Well, they went to go see the woman who who was possessed. But these were the kind of people that Aldous and him were looking up. 
Eventually, right. they made their way through through the sort of mystical like Taos and places like that in New Mexico, and landed in Hollywood, because uh, Aldous Huxley thought it's e- a lot easier to make money writing screenplays than it is writing books, and yeah. he was right because he made a fortune off just a few screenplays for movies, and they became the darlings of Hollywood, and Gerald Hurt became the mystic of Southern California. And he basically built what we would now commonly construe as the New Age movement, uh, at least its Southern California uh, embodiment. Wow. Uh, and part of the wow. – they people came from everywhere, um, guys like Igor Stravinsky, Steve Allen, the original host of the uh, you know Tonight like Show, that. all these other famous people were gurus of of uh, Gerald Hurd, and. Uh, uh, Gerald Hurd would just sort of hold court, and he would talk and talk and talk, and people would say, my, that was the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And you'd ask him and say, well, what is it actually that he said? And they'd say, well, I don't know exactly what it was, but it was amazing. And this was sort of a common theme. And yeah. um, the, the the second man who took over Faith and Freedom, and all these people were businessmen that did, uh, James N. Gebertson was the original chief counsel for the um, – U.S. Chamber of Commerce, mm-hmm. and who was another major funder of this religious thing, uh, along with the National Association of Manufacturers. And when he got on board, he became he was led to become one of the follower disciples of Gerald Hurd. Uh, he had had a mystical experience. Now you got to realize these people are writing a document to teach big business libertarian views to conservative Christian clergy. And now they've yeah. got a guy who's a hardcore New Age guy who is their guru writing in the newsletters. And so this yeah. guy who headed this organization had some kind of psychic break or something where he was visited by his dead infant daughter. And he what? suddenly took on this – This oh, yeah, of course. And it gets weirder from there. I'm, t- I'm telling you the mainstream stuff. But yeah. when, when he had this visitation by her, he, he took on this name that was a glyph. Um you know, sort of like uh, the artist formerly like known Prince. as Prince, you know, right? Yeah, well, yeah. That's old school. Yeah, this guy did it a long time ago, and he re- insisted on being known as Christopher with a K. And yeah. so he had this big psychic change, and he was directed by a Catholic priest, surprisingly, to Gerald Hurd. And Gerald Hurd led him through his New Age evolution and founding a school, New Age school. And eventually, Gerald Hurd was the one that really started the psychic uh, dabbling into LSD. Jesus. What, what this guy's Gerald had quite Hurt a life. Was, I'm telling you, he is the Forrest Gump of the parapsychology world. He was yeah. the one that really got the LSD movement in Fortune 500 in the 50s. I'm, say, I'm talking in the, in the early to mid-50s, he had yeah. a large portion of the Fortune 500 leaders Downing LSD and having experiences, the hippies were the last ones to get their hands on it. And, and Gerald Hurd was working with some other people who were famous at the time, like Humphrey Osmond, Dr. Osmond from Canada, who was making large amounts of it uh, available in America. And then you had some really, really dark people like Al Hubbard, who yeah. was working with CIA and a bunch of other kind of people and people that to this day we don't know how he was getting his hands on untold amounts of LSD for untold reasons. But all these people played a role, and that's why 
people like, uh, well, Steve Allen. He got Steve Allen taking LSD, uh, Cary Grant. All these other people were sort of initiated. But probably one of the most famous people who was a disciple of Gerald Hurd that, that he got him into the LSD use was Bill Wilson, the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. Mm-hmm. Because uh, Bill Wilson had had his first religious experience trying to break alcoholism through something they called the Belladonna Cure, where they were giving him these kind of things like henbane and other stuff that they use in the old folk witchcraft religion and the old yeah. world. Well, they were using this to try. I don't know if it was something to shock the system or something. But anyway, he had an experience. He was flying, and he oh, said, if this, is the, if this is the God of the preachers, then I'm sold. And that's why he made a, tr- a change, of course. And I did a little research on Henbane for the book, and I found it was interesting that um, one of the sensations of Henbane is it gives you a sensation of flying. And the best way to take it, it's dangerous if you take it orally, and so it's best to be soaked through the mucous membrane. And through some, um, I don't know, old sociologists, I guess, cultural anthropologists, they say what they – in the old world what they did was they would actually make it into like a – put it with grease, like a salve in it, and put it on broomsticks. And that Weird. women who were in the old religion and Wicca would actually straddle it, and that's how they were able in the mucous membranes to ingest the henbane. Hence all of the traditions about women flying on – you know, broomsticks in the air to the yeah. bots and all that kind of stuff. So there is a reason where those stories come from. But this Belladonna cure from the Townsend Hospital is what sent him on some kind of course, but he never could have another spiritual experience like that. And he had a hard time staying on the wagon. He had other kind of things that, you know, bothered him, chronic cigarette smoker. And so he agreed uh, under Gerald Hurd's um, care to begin taking LSD, and he resumed this same kind of mystical experience through ingesting uh, LSD. The other people that Gerald Hurd assisted with and, and Sidney Cohen, the psychiatrist, were – I'm going uh, to jump in here booth. so I can kind of – we, yeah. we, we, let's, let's, uh, let's pivot a little bit here. So where okay. where do you see all this going? Like uh, – uh, are are you are we heading towards some kind of end times? Do you think I, I, I kind of have a very basic <laughs> eschatological view in a way? So, yeah. but but this seems like you know uh, pretty we're, we're in a pretty bad spot here as far as uh, what's going on with the church and everything. If that if what you see is well, unfolding, you, you know I, I've had a history in the past of a fascination with Bible prophecy, but actually you're ten steps ahead of me on that. Ahead of Doctor Future, I, I make an allusion to that in my book. Uh, but mm-hmm. more of my concern is not the the esoteric religion; it is the mammon worship of money that is a greater danger in my view. And okay. if you if you look back, if you look in the Bible, you take it if you're one to take it literally, it makes it very very clear that that's the real threat in the last days. Is that the the money people, what they call the Great City Babylon, is the one. That the that the the woman is riding, you know, the great whore Babylon is riding, uh, yeah. and the great city Babylon is the one that uses uh, money and trading to trade in the souls of men, and so mm-hmm. that's actually a bigger danger of uh, people of goodwill than some of this other stuff I'm talking about. But but the reason why I mention these things is that these are people 
who portrayed themselves as all shucks. We're just good old fundamentalist Christian people that, you know, yeah. believe traditional Orthodox faith. But you never really know these people. And and this is not to besmirch a genuine faith. That's not that, you know, like, like I pursue. But it's to show that these people, you don't know half of what they're involved. A lot of what I'm talking about right here in this movement and the original origins of the American Libertarian Group, I was able to document uh, through Leonard Reed, one of its founders, uh, came yeah. out of Bohemian Grove. Uh, I, probably one of the longest narratives I got my hand on of somebody – writing a memoir of their time at Bohemian Grove. Uh, and here I'm sure you're well familiar with Bohemian Grove, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, it's hard to get information out about it. And I right. went on uh, Lou Lou Rockwell, a uh, guy who's very popular. On, I'm sure he's probably on on Alex Jones a lot and things like that uh, and other yeah. venues. On, on their website, on the Mises Institute there at Auburn University, they have these faith and freedom newsletters preserved, and they also have yeah. some records at the um, uh, Foundation of Economic Education, which is supposed to be just a sort of pro-business, pro-politics thing. They have his memoir going to Bohemian Grove, and you you see about um, Herbert Hoover, uh, who they called the chief there, who basically was the guy overseeing all of the things, and how they got all of this support for these operations – by selling it to everybody over the debauchery at Bohemian Grove. And what I have found <laughs> since since I wrote this book is that one of the other ringleaders in this book, J. Howard Pugh, who was the guy who – his father actually technically founded Sun Oil, and Pugh raised it into Sunoco as a conglomerate. He's the guy who bankrolled most all of this, and I knew that he was part of the, the bonus plot. Uh, as part of the American Liberty League that tried to overthrow FDR. It was a coup. Uh, I'm, are you familiar much with that? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Yeah, where they, they actually conspired with the head of DuPont, head of General Motors, um, Governor of New York, uh, several other key figures, uh, some folks from uh, Morgan, um, to basically try to get General Smedley Butler, who's one of the most uh, – uh, recognized and awarded uh, soldiers in American history to take over a group of World War One brown shirts to basically do a coup and overthrow FDR. Well, Pugh was connected to that, and in the congressional hearing testimony, his name came up uh, in it. But since then, when I was looking through some other records uh, on reports that you got to go back, you know, seventy, eighty years to get this information. He also was in a group called the Liberty Lobby. I don't know. Does that ring a bell with you? The Liberty Lobby, Willis Carto. No, you're <laughs> you're, yeah. you're swimming in all kinds of waters. I don't usually swim in. So yeah, uh, well, I'm well, learning Willis, here. I'm learning from you, Doc, yeah. uh, Doctor Future. Yeah. Well, Willis Carto. Well, where do you see this all going, though? I mean, what's the end game of all this? I mean, uh, you, you, we talked about this nefarious plot, but it's like it, it's right. um, to me. I'm living in the now. I'm living in the 2020. I need to know yeah. what <laughs> – I need to well, know well, – I mean, fuck fuck all these people, uh, you know, from <laughs> who did all yeah, this. Yeah. What, but what's – where are we at now, Dr. Future? What What well, is yeah. – what's going on? The punchline is they succeeded. The, the question is not it where they're going. Way, yes. The question is how did they pull it off? And – 
the key that we need to know this now and expose this is that a lot of your listeners who look at these crazy religious right people who make me tear my hair out too, and they do right. all this crazy stuff, particularly the last few years, and they seem like they hate everybody but themselves, and they they seem many times so fascistic in in the way they look at the world uh, and, and don't care about anybody who's downtrodden. Um, the thing was, from what I found was, these people were brainwashed. They, they, and, and their clergy were brainwashed. The, the right. people who came before them, their professors were brainwashed. This was something that had huge money thrown, and you, it goes all the way back to about 1930. And in fact, what I document in my book elsewhere is, is that while faith and freedom and, and uh, similar periodicals sort of held sway, particularly up through the 60s. There was a transition between these people and the Jerry Falwells and these kind of guys who sort of took over mm-hmm. the moral majority. You had guys like Carl McIntyre, guys like uh, Billy James Hargis, and others who were hardcore fascists. These were guys who, like uh, the Silver Shirts and others, they were all yeah. active together. They were involved with the German Bund. They uh, espoused uh, pro-Nazi sympathies. Uh, some of them, like uh, Colonel Walker, uh, have some connections to the JFK assassination. Actually, Colonel Walker, Edwin Walker, who was tied to these gentlemen, was actually uh, – they say he was fired upon by uh, 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 the assassin, you know, the supposed assassin of JFK. Um, right. These, these people were running a hard uh, – another one of these guys who did this, uh, Gerald L.K. Smith, is a guy now who's known as the guy who – built the Christ of the Ozarks um, village in the Ozarks in Arkansas, Eureka, Arkansas. Yeah. He, w- he was a hardcore Nazi. And so is this a situation died. where we have like successive generations where maybe the people today don't even realize, you know, even like does anyone really know sort of what the original agenda was, if you will? You know what I mean? Is it just like oh, – yeah. Successive generations now of brainwashed people. Yeah, yeah. My, my point, if going full circle back to my beginning of the discussion of this mystery, mm-hmm. we look at these people making these arguments today where they obviously don't care about their fellow man. They don't care about the downtrodden. They don't care anything that seems to be just overtly decent. But yet they say they're they're good Christians, and you know this is what they believe, and they basically can't stand anybody else that's different. The problem is is that some people sat in a boardroom and paid big money several generations ago to write this script, and they, and they have won. They have succeeded. Right now there's yeah. a guy who's, who's basically the reincarnation, metaphorically, of James Fifield uh, that's currently in the White House right now. His name is Ralph Drollinger, something called Capital Ministries. He's doing the exact same thing. He has the exact same message, and his organization makes a fortune. And Mike Pompeo, um, Mike Pence, and um, oh, who was the, the Alabama guy? Um, Jeff Sessions. Jeff Sessions brought this guy in, and he's leading. He's teaching these identical teachings that God hates the environment. We are to control and dominate it. Uh, Right, workers right. ought to be lucky they have any job, a minimum wage is of the devil. Any of these things are are still being taught. So so it's it's the best investment these people ever made. The money they put to co-opt the people that we trusted 
And, and I say this sympathetically to our clergy and others because they didn't know what hit them. Yeah. Should they have known better? Yes, they should. And there were many who did know, and there was many that spoke out. Uh, one guy in the 50s wrote a book called Apostles of Discord, and he exposed – I found out after I was almost finishing my book – he found out the fascistic leanings of these guys like Billy James Hargis and Carl McIntyre yeah. and the other stuff. They had millions of followers, were ubiquitous on TV and radio, and he was an actual clergyman that said, stop the insanity. And this is going to have dark repercussions in further generations. But I don't think he ever saw what we've gone through in the last few years. But, yeah, but these like, people uh, dealt with dark What's that? Like powers. The Handmaid's Tale. It's like, oh, no, are we going yeah. to end up yeah. like in The Handmaid's Tale? Maybe worse. Maybe that's with the good old days compared to, you know, the kind of, or, or what we can expect in the next few years to come. But, uh, you know, if, if you're interested in learning more about Gerald Hurd and his influence on all this, he was one of the guys that wrote one of the first UFO books called really? Are They Watching Us? 1950. Uh, are they watching us about UFOs? Um, he wrote some, uh, like one was called A Taste of Honey, about super intelligent bees that became a movie called, uh, oh, The Savage Bees. I think it had Joan Collins in it. Um, <laughs> Savage MSK Bees. had it on. Yeah. That sounds yeah. like a movie which, Adam Gorelli would like. Um, which, by the way, I have been on the site of the Satellite of Love. If you look at my avatar, you can see me with my arms around Tom Servo and Crow because I actually broke into their set one day, and I actually got really? in and got my pictures. Wet. So if you see my avatar online somewhere, you'll you'll see old Doc Future right there at the podium of Satellite of Love with Crow and Tom Servo around my arms. You actually broke in, or were you were you let oh, in? I found a I got a door. Oh, no, 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 no. I I found out where it was. I worked until I got a door. And loose, and then I got I got busted when I was walking around in there, and they were real cool about it. They showed me I got pictures with all the prop robots that they had, and yeah, got to see the hungry hungry hippos on the wall right when the doors open, you know, and the thing. So, so oh, yeah, wow. so I That's had really my cool. own own hidden weirdness. That I that was the time I had my head examined. I don't know if you've ever had your head examined, but I this I phrenology you're talking it. about. Yeah, yeah, at the Museum yeah, you, of so Questions and Medical Devices. Yes, I have, and I've got the printout for it. So so at least I'm one guest you have that is certified. I've certified Where's my that? Exam where where did you have that done? Is that in Nashville? Uh, that was at the Museum of Questionable Medical Devices in Minneapolis. Oh, I want to check highly, that out. Highly, my, my favorite museum I think I've been to. Basically, it was equipment that the FDA had confiscated that was quackery. And if you like anything that's like electrical and things that send dangerous shocks to the body, then it's the place yeah. for you. Interesting, interesting. Now, how do you <coughs> – excuse me. Um, what do you think of uh, – the, how does the UFO phenomenon fit into all this? Because uh, you mentioned the Collins Elite stuff earlier, and there's sort of this theory, yeah. this uh, belief, uh, speculation, whatever you want to call it, that um, that you know there are forces within the government who think that all this is uh, demonic, and uh, right. that's kind of why there's been a problem in a sense uh, with us right. really having an honest examination of the issue of what these things are. Um, so, I mean, what's your, what's your take on all that and how it fits into this whole, this whole yeah. story? 
Well, you know, it's funny. Gerald Hurd uh, taught – of course, he was writing about this in 1950. He believed that Mars was actually operated by bees, uh, and he thought that insects actually ran it. And what's interesting is the story he wrote was basically produced years later in a best-selling movie uh, uh, called uh, Quatermass in the Pit, which is considered one of the greatest science fiction stories ever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that was basically – and it was done as 5 million miles to Earth here. But, you know, it's funny you asked me about UFOs because um, uh, are you familiar with the aviary? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, the you know, the people, they take the uh, the monikers of different birds that were yeah, key yeah, figures the in, the, in yeah. the government. Well, one of the key figures I used to work with extensively, and in fact really? he was outed one night on Coast to Coast AM. Uh, he was known as Hawk, and uh, his name was Ernie Kellerstrass. And yeah. I don't know if you remember that when he was outed on Coast to Coast, but we we uh, interacted regularly uh, about UFOs at Wright Patterson Air Force Base. I worked there, and uh, I worked in Hangar 13. I did, of course, you know, if I had my hands on UFOs, I didn't know. In fact, uh, um, one of the areas online that shows where the dead aliens are kept was actually a vault that my wife worked in. So that explained <laughs> a lot to me about her origins there in Area B and Wright-Patterson. But yeah, he and I used to talk all the time. He he uh, used to work in the Foreign Technology Division. He was a, a colonel, mm-hmm. retired colonel, and uh, he talked about them chasing uh, UFOs of different types. And you know, I could get him to talk so long, and then he would sort of Bring it, you know, to a stop, and people sort of raise an eyebrow around him, but nobody had an idea about his secret identity at Hawk. Uh, that yeah. came out long after I had left the base when he was he was out at, uh, um, I can't remember how many years ago on coast to coast. I'm so, sure he was probably retired uh, by then anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and he was he was quite an older man when I worked with him, uh, and he was just doing regular engineering design work, um, you know, just. Relatively mundane stuff other than we blew up airplanes for a living at a gun range. But, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, but while we'd be working on a project or things, and I, I usually had a bunch of people working for me on big projects, uh, he would regale me with some of the events or them chasing things and this and that. So that was uh, – you know, had I known then everything that I knew, I didn't know how deep he went in that kind of thing. So I, I wish I could uh, – Tell you more in depth of the secret information I had on that, but uh, well, that's you know, fine. But what the, do you think, most, though? So I, beyond what he said to you, what I mean, what's your? I mean, you you've been around the block. I mean, you know plenty about this phenomenon. Yeah. So what do you mean? What do you think of it and how it fits into this uh, this worldview you've laid out? Well, you know, I, I I'll tell you, I trust. You know, the closest I've come to anything like this is a really weird event I had at Area Fifty One at the. At the you know place where you don't go past the area like that, uh, yeah. I and and somebody with me had a strange occurrence there. But but aside from that, I have to sort of get it third hand. But when I had a number of these people on Future Quake, guys like Ray Boucher, who's now a, still today a minister today, operating very low key but an excellent researcher, and a number of other people I had, they come across as very credible to me. And the information they had seems to convincingly show that there is something out there. Uh, I don't know the details about it. I don't know who they're talking to. I don't know if there's people that you know we have. I do know when I was invited to speak as a 
sort of a keynote speaker at a United Nations conference on religion mm-hmm. and spirituality. Uh, that came up as a discussion a lot. Uh, and it was a UN-sponsored event, but uh, Dr. Stephen Greer spoke quite a bit and Steve Bassett. And mm-hmm. uh, at the United Nations, they sort of took it as uh, sort of expected. I mean, that was just sort of like matter of fact. Um I first found out about the organization through a story that I covered on my radio show about where they were talking about UFO interactions with Earth. And I thought, at a United Nations thing, that's pretty interesting. So I contacted the head of the organization, and it was really a a religious, spiritual thing. Now, most of them were spirit channelers and mediums. In fact, just about all of them that were there in Montreal were except for me. Um, But So that was more of their thing. But, you know, they had like Edgar Mitchell and people like that involved. you know, speaking of Edgar Mitchell, um, in one of the volumes that comes after this, because this is the first of three volumes, uh, it gets worse uh, from what this this has. He asked where it's going. I've got more and more disturbing information already written. Yeah, I didn't mean two. to spoil the series but, there. <laughs> no, it's okay. But but the third, but the, well, I mean, I didn't even disclose any of that. But in the third series, um, I get in a little bit about the Institute of Noetic Sciences. And some of the stuff that they're getting into, um, it's not totally baseless from yeah. from what I hear to you know, other people on the inside. I wish I could tell you, like, it's not like the Georgia Gadstones where I can tell you I've got documents showing I know exactly who R.C. Christian is. When it comes to UFOs, I don't have any in my freezer. I'm All sorry right, that's say. cool. That's a good segue. I don't, I, don't have, uh, I don't have Bigfoot in there either. I wish I did, though. But Don't we all? You know. We gotta spread this stuff around. Let's put it on the internet. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Great heavens! What kind of radio show is this? Let's let's uh, talk about the Georgia Guidestones because uh, a lot of people. What's interesting is uh, I first heard about your work. Uh, Adam Sane was talking about it uh, when I first met him. And, yeah, let me uh, let me cheer old Adam Sane here from Conspiranormal. Who? Uh, yeah, he's a great dude. Really, really want to thank our mutual friend there. In fact, if he keeps giving me tips like your show, I'm going to make him my Benjamin Krim. So there you he go. Can, he can be my herald. Like, you know, I can be Lord Maitreya and he can be my Benjamin Krim. But I'm sure he'd want to reverse it and have me carry his coattails. But anyway, thank you, Adam, out there. Well, if you're, if, really if you're Dr. Future, he can be Apprentice Present. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that has the same ring to it, but. Yeah, I like that. He I don't, I don't think I have a good a, apprentice present. That could be his. Uh, yeah, that could be his moniker. So, apprentice when he, present. Yeah, that's a mouthful. I know. I know. Uh, yeah. I, I want to hear him draw that. But the what what amazed me was he was talking about this um, like I think six months before I met you, um, and the yeah. movie. The movie had come out. Let me see. What year did the movie come out? Well, actually, it was released in probably 2015, 2016. Has it right. been that the long? movie came out I about four or five years ago. That, yeah, yeah, I can't imagine it's been that long. I guess I don't, maybe it was a little later than that. Uh, you know, I'm not involved with the co-producer. It was a little bit of a shotgun wedding, to be real honest with you. I don't get Right, right. I don't necessarily need I'm to talk about not, the movie. I'm, just, I'm not – yeah, I'm not sure. Well, but I'm very proud. That's when the information the came to light. That's, that's all. That's the that's yeah. the point I'm trying to make. Well, that's when the information you know, came actually, to light. And uh, actually, half of the main story was was gleaned in 2010, 
when a lot of people were trying to crack it because it was the 30th anniversary of when it was, you know, opened up. And the other dude shelved it for five years. So I had to uh, actually, if anybody appreciates that, they need to thank me at least because I really pushed and pushed and pushed and campaigned to get it finished. And it turned out part two of what we ended up doing, which took us to another part of the country, was made it just a super whopper uh, of a documentary. But that's, there was a five-year interlude. Uh, that's why you see me just get even a little bit fatter, from fat to fatter, <laughs> uh, with a five-year gap. So you can tell the difference. Uh, well, to, the point I'm trying to make is uh, what's interesting, my thought was interesting, is that Adam was telling this story, and it was like, wait a minute. So someone figured out the Georgia Guidestones, and it's like no one – when I I noticed this again when I announced that you were coming on the show tonight – uh, that was the reaction from a lot of people. They were like, wait a minute, the Georgia Guidestones got solved? So uh, I'm stunned that this hasn't become more news, but I'm glad we're talking about it here on the Me show. Too. Because Me as too. I said, I, I have uh, I've kind of avoided this story because I wanted to hear it you know, firsthand. So I guess let's start out, how did you even, how did you get on to this, this story in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, let me just say, I would expect people to be skeptical because how many documentaries have we seen from the History Channel or National Geographic or whoever that always says, oh, big breakthroughs on the Georgia Gadstones, blah, 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 and you watch it and watch it and watch it, and there's a bunch of talking heads blathering like usual, speculating with nothing to go on, and at the end they just leave it at that. And people get jaded. And and exactly. this is not a story like that. This is a story of it, – it's not any of this fake uh, reality TV stage kind of stuff, but it is the closest thing to a real-life Da Vinci Code event that I would have ever imagined I would be a part of with, like, real treasure chest found serendipitously on, on camera, almost by accident, uh, not staged. Uh, but, but how I got involved in it was I wasn't planning to do a story on it. But a documentary filmmaker, Chris Pinto, who'd been on my show a number of times, uh, wanted to do a story just to document it. Now, he comes from a much more hardcore, uh, more narrower Christian viewpoint of things and what I come from, uh, and, and we've had more differences over the years. But he's a good, you know, he makes a nice documentary, nice quality job. And it's, I always thought it was an interesting story because of the mystery of who it, who, who built it and for what purpose, really, because nobody exactly. knew it's known as America's Stonehenge. And uh, so, you know, I was a sucker for it. So I said, okay, heck, we'll go along. The only thing that he knew to do was he wanted to get uh, interviews of all the players that had some peripheral role before they died because it had been 30 years, and these people were extremely old. And, you know, maybe we'll learn some things while we while they tell their same story, including a bunch of people who had never been interviewed that were part of it. Well, Okay, now let me circle back on you okay. just so we can bring yeah. listeners up to speed who may not be sure. aware. I always forget that, um, you know, I always, I always sort of jump a little bit ahead. First, before we get into how you got mixed up in it, because you've given us a little bit of the background now, but what – I guess yeah. tell people the, what these Georgia Guidestones are, because I know what they are, but other people don't. So I guess yeah. give us the right. mainstream history of these Georgia Guidestones, uh, yeah. you know, so people can, can – uh, sure. so they're on the same page as us. 
Right. I have been told that it is the most visited free tourist attraction in the state of Georgia. I don't know if that's true. Um, it is, it's commonly known as America's Stonehenge. It's really close to the border of South Carolina, really more of an hour, hour and a half from Atlanta, due east, um, out in the middle of this little, small little town called Elberton, a little tiny town. And it's like a little miniature Stonehenge, but it's made out of chiseled granite. It's, they call themselves the granite capital of the world there. And there's these 21-foot-tall slabs, granite slabs, that are arranged in a particular orientation sticking up with a little slab on top. But they're made precisely to line up with all of the main astronomical, astrological, other ley lines of the Earth. Um, they have holes drilled to them strategically so you can actually look through holes and line up the summer solstice, winter solstice, the equinoxes. You can track the stars. You can basically build a calendar just out of the observations you make. Uh, they, the world-class experts from the United Nations were brought in and other university experts to, to do this, so it's precisely accurate. Uh, the thing that's most chilling about it, well, one is nobody except for one man ever really knew who this person was that conceived of it and initiated it and bankrolled it. He just went by yeah. this name, R.C. Christian, and he just showed up out of nowhere, mysterious man, very distinguished, and had a lot of money. And they charged him a fortune, and he came up with the money easy. And uh, But he wanted these inscriptions on the slabs. And they're made in a whole bunch of all of the ancient languages that were the major languages of the ancient world and also the major languages of the world today. And they had something that they they called the guides for the world, and, and particularly for the future. And these guides had a number of things that, you know, certain conspiracy and – Religious people and others would make their hair raise up on their neck, like, you know, we we need to have one world government, single world courts, single language, sort of Tower of Babel kind of stuff. And then the one that always grabs people was it says that the the population of Earth should be brought uh, into 500 million or less, you know, in, in harmony with nature. And right, of course, right. the only That's detail of that is that, yeah. is that we're running around seven and a half million or a billion right now. So right, right. you don't see many people volunteer uh, to yeah, be the majority exactly, to exactly. get rid of. So, so when they popped you know, up, this, this, did yeah. no one knew where they had come from? Like, uh, how did anyone even hear about it in the first place? I guess that's that, you know that well, kind of is an interesting angle in a sense. Like if this guy, so he yeah. had him put up. But he didn't have some big ceremony or anything to announce it, so, so they just appeared. Well, actually, and I guess what was going he on didn't. at the very time that they were put in? Because clearly that couldn't happen he in one did. day either. Yeah, he didn't. If you watch the documentary, you're going to see all this because there's some footage that we got from the Elberton Museum that actually shows the, the unveiling of it in 1980. Ah, okay. And, oh, yeah, you can see all the original stuff. I mean – like I said, I've got the original drawings of the Gadstones in my safety deposit box, including the the elements that were supposed to be built on it that didn't get put on it, and and who it was dedicated to, and those kind of things, and letters from R.C. Christian, uh, from the construction files and things like that. But uh, anyway, uh, when he rolled in out of nowhere, just in the town, and wanted to build this thing, um, they thought he was crazy. 
and at the the granite uh builders and so they sent him to the banker in town uh because they figured well he could verify if this guy really had the money he was talking about and the man insisted on a pseudonym with everybody this RC Christian and right. the only man that he would expose his real name to was a fellow by the name of Wyatt Martin who was the banker because he had to do a security verification on him for yeah. sending the money and but he had to make him take a pledge and this pledge was he would never divulge his name and um he verified that it was legit and that the money was was real and to everybody's shock this guy was serious and so they started working now all these people you got to think it's a perfect storm because Elbertson's this little sleepy small town nobody knows their goal right. in the whole town is to promote granite. They want to let you know them to know that they make for buildings, for tombstones, for whatever. Uh, right, right. So they they have a a goal to be famous. They yeah. like to make themselves famous. All these guys, not surprisingly, were all high level Freemasons. I mean, because they're real Masons. I mean, you know, if anybody yeah. deserved being a Freemason, it was them. So they're all high level. You know, and a lot of these people. And in, in that kind of thing, they would love to have something that has an air of mystery and transcendence and something that ties back to the ancient mystical world. I mean, it was just a, a perfect scenario for them, and I'm going to get paid to do it. You know, this was the rage of the lodge. Yeah. And so they had a number of these 33-degree masons that, you know, they were all in on this. And uh, the more mysterious, the better, as far as they were concerned. And uh but but the the main city fathers thought this was a bonanza for publicity. Nobody yeah. knows who this guy is. They don't know what the meaning is of these statements. And as they say on on camera for us, you know, the the more it stays a mystery, the better. Huh, uh, and so it it was unveiled in on 1980, after I don't know six months or so of construction. Um, yeah. They had a I mean huge bleachers set up. People from universities and people over the um, congressmen were there. Everybody. Oh was wow! There. Okay, okay. So, you know, all right. Yeah, so I mean, my... yeah, this is a big event, and and you know, it's <laughs> weird. Is now this is the Bible Belt. These are all people in church every week, and they're reading all of this mystical, you know, stuff like you'd think you'd hear in a Bible prophecy conference, and they're looking at this thing, and they're thinking, oh, this is great for our community, and it's like, did you read what's on it? I mean, one of the slides is there in English. I mean, you can read, you know, what yeah, it says, yeah, yeah. but it's like the cognitive dissonance. And this is a recurring theme even in my book. It's a cognitive dissonance. So, like, I believe this and this and this and this. Well, you're doing this and it's the opposite. And it's like, well, and? And I find that Yeah, yeah, it goes also to your point about, about you know, money worship, where it's like, money, well, money, well when, they set when aside the their any, any misgivings they might yeah. have about the language in the thing because uh, they think right. it will really help their, their township. The holy the holy dollar, yeah, and they, and they weren't bashful about it. The, the city fathers we interviewed that were there at the time all said, yeah, we thought this would be, you know, yeah, we knew it was mysterious, and they had witches go out there, and they'd have witches ceremonies and weird cult religions out there. And they just winked at it, and they just thought it was funny, you know. They, you know, and then they tell the rumors. Why well, I, I heard some people sacrifice goats out there, and and it certainly didn't bother them. And you wonder if they just made up those stories just to get foot traffic in there. Yeah. But but the thing was, none of them knew the whole story of what was going on, including the banker who knew the man's identity. And 
I don't want to spoil it for the people who want to go see it. And, in fact, people can go see it for free. If you go on to Amazon Prime, I just checked it out a couple weeks ago. Go on there and watch it for yourself. I don't care whether you pay a penny for it. I don't get a penny for it. Go watch it for free. You've got to be patient. Get you some a comfortable chair because to tell the whole story, it takes a good two hours. And uh, it's particularly good for people who don't know anything about it because it really goes back to the origins of how I got started from the horse's mouth of the people in interviews all the people that were involved in the construction, and you find out from each one of them little snippets of what they picked up about this R.C. Christian. It's like a whodunit. Right. Well, he was about this tall, and it seemed like he had a Midwestern accent. It seemed like he knew a lot about plants, and then he knew a lot about horticulture. And he, he was very dignified, and seemed like he knew a lot about you know construction and things like that. And um, this was ideal for me. Because as an inventor, I've got 24 patents. Yeah, I'm familiar with the patent literature and other stuff. That turned out to be a critical thing in me being able to confirm the identity of R.C. Christian. Not that that was uh, indirectly inferred, but to further verify smoking gun evidence that we yeah. uncovered. But but the key is about is about 70 minutes in. Wyatt Martin, when we're interviewing him and finding out everything we can R.C. Christian, he confirmed that. Um, he confirmed that there was this infamous typewriter case, IBM or computer case, that had all the letters from R.C. Christian in it. Uh, the Los Angeles Times, CNN, others had asked him about it. He said, yeah, at one time I kept all the letters, but I destroyed it. And we found out on camera, uh, upon querying him, we found out that, in fact, he had not destroyed it, and he still had ah. it. Ah. And then you see us make the strongest pitch we can of like, could we take a peek at it? Could we take a little look at it? How about letting us go yeah, out there? Yeah, yeah. And none of that was staged. All of that was just fell in our lap. And it was early in our process. And it was even before we went to Elberton. Um, and then things start falling in place. But I'll, I'll tell you this. You'll see some of the well, well, let's, let's be fair, Doctor. Let's let's, yeah. let's be fair, Doctor Future. So, if people, because if, if, if people want to know the answer, so if, I, well, I'm advising the listeners now. If you don't want to be spoiled, stop the program, oh, no. go watch oh. the movie, and come back. But you, you want me, give you, a minute, you want me to to reveal it right on on live radio. I think that's the fair thing to do because uh plus you know like I said people don't people don't seem to to know that this this is that this has been solved so you know pat yourself on the yeah. back and and give us the answer to this mystery who is the guy who who built the Georgia Guidestone well it's going to take a lot of fun out of the people who watch it because I want them to see I'll tell you this much I'll tell you this just to show you to verify it what what we verified from actual letters, from addresses, from confirmation of who was at the address and when and wrote letters and things like this, that it was a very prominent person in the upper Midwest who was also connected to another person that was very prestigious in the media in the upper Midwest, and we were able to verify that they were working together. And that, um, in fact, I interview a circuit court judge that was a relative of one of them 
that was able to give some verification of their involvement in working together. Um, and I'll, I'll even give you a, a little darker one. It involves some really dark, um, super fascist organizations. It involves a Nobel laureate that has a really <laughs> super dark cloud over him. And it also Why don't you involves, just tell us? We've got 40 minutes. I mean, <laughs> well, it involves it involves a mystical organization. Um, uh, and well, I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll give you this one. How about this? Um, one of the groups that was fingered in the documents that we were able to uncover um, mm-hmm. was the Rosicrucians. Uh, if if the documents are authentic, um, uh, it gave directions, and this was information that appeared to have been planned to be planted in the time capsule. And in the time what? capsule uh, that is uh, supposedly placed underneath it, and when we interviewed the people that actually built the uh, um, foundations for the Georgia Gadstones, um, they tried to toy with us a little bit, but we already had information. We were just looking for verification. It appears yeah. that uh, well, we noted the fact that it doesn't show the exact date when it's supposed to be unearthed and uh, and what was down in there. And they were a little coy with us and gave indication that, yeah, it's down there. But, you know, they didn't want to spoil the mystery. But what they did not know was that we'd already gotten information from the construction files. It also, the whole thing involved one of the very richest men in the state of Georgia. Uh, who had bought the property. And the interview that we did with him, um, I don't know if it all comes out on camera, but that had to be one of the most uh, eyes wide shut kind of scenarios I've ever been in. It was in this super ornate house of this man on basically on oxygen, um, trying to stay alive, ridiculously wealthy, had all these young nurses yeah. waiting on him. And, marble statues and marble columns and things. And and I could watch when when we were interviewing him on camera, his eyes kept darting when we were asking him pointed questions. And the man who was the Freemasonic man who had done the thing, I could capture him watching hands, making hand signals to the guy, where he was making hand signals for the guy what to say or not say. So who knows who was putting on who? But but what they were not aware of is the information that we had actually had that were actual letters and other things that we, for an instant, for an instant, were privy to. And yeah. that allowed us to put the pieces together that even those guys who were really close to it were not able, that were involved in the original construction, were not able to put together because they only had bits and pieces of the identity of this man who was a very, very successful uh, person in medicine who was well known in his state, who uh was tied with some, you know, fascistic leanings, who um was well known for that by certain people in his community, even though he was well respected, um, and was tied, like I said, to a Nobel laureate with a really dark past. And uh, I want people to see it for themselves. I mean it's it's all right there on camera. They can actually see everything as it comes out. This is not one of these things where it's like, well, could it be this person or could it be this person? We show addresses. We show names. We show the house where the person lives. All right. We show these. So you don't want to say the guy's name. I mean, we just, <laughs> well, I just want to, you know. And <laughs> I guess not, if I'm people wouldn't recognize game. the name anyway. It's kind of like, is this a name no one would know? 
It's you know, like, like Jim Lydica. Kind of no, no offense, Jim Lydica in the chat room. I'm just giving you the no. The name no, of the it, movie is yeah. Dark Clouds Over Elberton: The True Story of the uh-huh. Georgia Guidestones, and it's on Amazon right now. Dark Clouds yeah. Over Elberton. The true story of the right. Georgia Guidestones. I apologize if it feels like I, I don't want to push you, but you know the movie came out I like know. five years ago, so it's, <laughs> it's not you know well, it's not like it's not like it's if, getting if, if released I, tonight. If I told um, you if I told you his name, it wouldn't be like oh my goodness, not him. Uh, right. This is right. A guy so it's who just, well it's known just in some the random. Field in okay. So what was yeah? What was the purpose yeah. of these Guidestones? Can you can you give us some insight into that? Well, um, you know he wrote a book. And I got a hand. I got my hands on the book. Now, now I, I will say this: when we say R.C. Christian, his letters always talk about it in a plural sense. Like this is something that we are doing. Our group is behind this. We want to bring about an age of reason. Um, and so, what I was able to verify was that a minimum two people that were part of the group, and possibly more, and they were very mm-hmm. prestigious individuals and. We have, through multiple sources, how they were connected together with each other. Um, but um, his his book elaborates further uh, about and, – and he sent leather-bound copies to every member of Congress when he did this. So they all have copies. I have a paperback copy that was one of the last copies at the Elberton Library I was able to get my hands on or maybe the Granite Museum, but you know. Nobody even knew it existed, so nobody was really asking much for it. So, you know, it's been out of print since, what, 1980, something like that. Um, yeah. But, but it elaborates on its philosophy, and it was very much – I would say it was very close to an Ayn Rand kind of rationalistic philosophy of mm-hmm. sacrificing the weak of the herd for the sake of the many, uh, very much forced sterilization of people. You know, if people didn't do what you want, or the people in power, then just let them starve. Uh, either Jeez. get a supply or to allow them to starve. Um, very much sort of a, a mystical belief system. It almost sounded a little Christian, but not quite, you know. Maybe more a manly P-hole kind of mystical belief system kind of thing. But But it was really this thought that mankind was at a crossroads, and if they didn't make hard decisions... To unify, and stop the Cold War, uh, stop the population explosion, which was still a concern, even in 1980. Um, but basically, they were sort of putting in the hands of a few the control over the fate of the majority of mankind, to, uh, you know, to their detriment. But but when you start tying in some of these other groups like the Rosicrucians, and then you find out there's some dark fascist organizations underneath it. They were involved in the eugenics movement, things like the Pioneer Fund, things like that, and eugenics. Mm-hmm. Then you start seeing the the dirty, the the very disturbing side of the fire power trip right. that was involved in what these guys were involved in. And uh, there's still more to be told there. I'd love to go there and use some, you know, if there's like a small ground penetrating radar kind of thing there on the on the property and just confirm about the. Uh, the uh, time capsule being down there. Uh, I have a document that appears as if it was something that was placed in, a copy of it placed in the time capsule, and I would like to verify that. I've got the rest of the construction documents, including things like the the pyramid that was supposed to go on top 
of the guidestones. In the surrounding uh, stones that were meant to be put in the perimeter uh, mm-hmm. that were supposed to be paid for by the Georgia Freemasons and a number of other organizations, but um, uh, groups like AMORC and others were identified in the documents. Yeah, I would recommend writing a book because clearly uh, yeah. this, this research has not penetrated the uh, the mainstream because if you – if this is as airtight as you believe, uh, you know, like I'm on the Wikipedia page right now, and uh, yeah. there's no. Oh, well, that's an interesting story itself. There's no, ex- you know, you're, there's no mention of yeah. you guys or your movie oh, or yeah. whoever your your, yeah. your suspect is. So it's like if well, you really you know solve this I, thing, you should be on like you know NBC News and CNN should have should have covered this, I, but I've seen. Uh, they well, didn't. The, so what's the story the, with that? Wi- yeah, if you look at the Wikipedia page, when you look at the raw data where it shows the entries, this was an education for me, you know, because it's supposed to be a community updating kind of thing. Right. Um, when this documentary came out, uh, and, and, a, and a bunch of people did get online and say, wow, they show the smoking gun. They give the guy's name. They show his address. They show why. <laughs> they have corroborating evidence from people who knew him, you know. And, and so yeah. anyway, one of these chaps did his job to go on Wikipedia and update it and say, uh, you know, these people have the definitive information. Well, I think what happened was there has been so much bogus stuff that's gone on over the years about people speculating with nothing to hang their hat on that the watchkeepers or whatever at Wikipedia basically dismissed the guy when he put the information up. In fact, the gentleman whose name is in there, a Wikipedia page was opened on the man with with the showing, here's why he's R.C. Christian, and they took it down. They said we don't want speculation, and, and the uh, now this I was not involved in inserting the information. Someone who who witnessed it, a third party, and said, "Yeah, this is, you know, case closed." And when they put yeah. that information up, they were perplexed over why Wikipedia kept taking it off. And well, you know, it's very I don't interesting know because, why, like I said, uh, nobody they, did. they, yeah, they took it off the Gadstones think... and they took the guy's name off. Well. You know, like I said, uh, uh, but you know what you need to do, Tim, is you need to watch it. I have absolutely. no doubt. Absolutely, oh, I plan on watching it this weekend. I you plan know, on when, it when this I show weekend. the man's, when I show the 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 case, and you can see an address, uh, and we go there, and well, here's the man's name that I was able to find. Here's the patent documents of his. It has his name. Has the same address at the same exact time he's building the Georgia Gadstones, and you know, 10 or 15 other pieces of evidence that corroborates name, place, location, and activity. Right. And and not just one man, I, particularly two, uh, who, who played a role, including um, writing the book, uh, being able to publicize it. Uh, information was sent by these gentlemen to things like uh, uh, the Smithsonian and other places like that, and you'll see that in the right. documentary. Uh, some of the footage that uh, Mr. Wyatt Martin uh, kept in the documentation from the gentleman. It's it's a classic who done it. I mean, it's just like uh, a Sherlock Holmes thing when you well, look at Well, you need to like put all this information in a book or something because no one's it's well, not you know, it's not story too. It's not breaking through. I don't understand. I, I mean, maybe it's because you kind of like to keep the guy's identity a secret unless you see the movie, so maybe, you know, 
uh, maybe well, that's why like this hasn't captured the attention of the main. Because, like, I, I mean, you know, anytime any mystery is solved, uh, people want to, yeah. you know, people want to exploit that and talk about it, and and uh, you know, so to me, it's like I'm very flummoxed by why this. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I'll under the radar of so many wanna... people. I'll tell you his name because it's already on the internet now since the documentary came out. It's already <laughs> circulating around. But it's a, it's a name someone you won't recognize as first pass. But you know I don't make a penny off this, so why do I care? Right, um, right. No, no, no. I didn't his, think his anything name, like that. I'm yeah. just saying, his, you know, if you yeah, if you really want to like get the because for some reason, yeah, it's not it's not resonating. But go on. Well, let me let me just <laughs> I'll tell you his his name is Herbert Kirsten K E R S T E N. Herbert there you go. Kirsten. That wasn't so hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Herbert, and, all right. and, yeah, so we don't even yeah. know. Yeah. Pro- product of but, Fort Dodge. Uh, why Iowa. do you think? Why do you think the this hasn't like why why is this not resonated? Is there a, is it a conspiracy not to not to you know uh, you know, you know not Adam to publicize saying, this? Adam saying he was one of the first people to interview me after we you know released the doc and. He was blown away. He he watched it. He says, "Wow, this is uh, open and shut. It's not a, you know." And he's a he's a pretty discerning kind of guy. You know, he's a good skeptic. And it was like there's there, there's no question. I mean, you 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 show the mo. You might as well just have to if he wasn't dead. It was the same as just having the guy up there to say it himself. Um, but uh, he was totally amazed on why it didn't get more traction. I sent I sent. Uh, you know, information to coast to coast, AM to give them a heads up about it, and heard crickets. Now, what Adam and I and others have picked up on is that there's a lot of people just looking at some of the discussion that are highly disappointed that it didn't involve aliens, that it didn't involve uh, right, right, you know, something else sort of juicy like that, sexy. I mean, it involves. Oh, some, so that might be. Yeah, I see. Neo-Nazi and I mean, the guy was from. Uh, I, I googled yeah. it now while we were talking, and from the sound of it, yeah. the guy was a kind of a, a, a fair, a very unsavory character. He had some real. Uh, he was not a good dude, so it's like maybe that's well, part of it too. Where. Uh, well, and and I'll, and I'll tell you too. He has some. You know, if it turned out Walt Disney other... had made it, maybe people would be more. <laughs> yeah. Excited. Well, I don't well, know. Well, you know what I'm saying? He and his colleague, his henchman, both have. Family members that are very very powerful, and so I haven't made it a really a big thing because they're very powerful. And so I guess I should say a caveat: while while I have an address out of the typewriter case with the name R.C. Christian written on it, an address, and I confirm the address and a name with it, that's what I have. And I guess he's not here to say that's who he is. So I'll leave it for for the right. sake of legal issues. I'll leave it to the. Uh, to the viewer ah. to determine that, but I, I will say I that there are very very powerful people in the family that are that are actually much more influential than than their fathers, as influential as their fathers were. Um, that would make sense. But uh, you know, the the head of the newspapers in Iowa was a guy who was giving him the hand with it. And oh boy! All right. Well, we don't want to get who, we don't want to get whacked by the deep state or anything. So. Well, I don't. Well, now you're going to get me whacked, and this will probably be my last interview. So thanks. <laughs> Yeah, you'll be fine, I hope you can dude. You'll be fine. Your Leave my wife a widow. <laughs> oh my god! I have like obsessive compulsive disorder, dude. Once I heard you solve the thing, I needed to know the name. Have you heard about the Fen Treasure at all? 
The the who? The Fen Treasure. The Fen Treasure. Um, yeah. Yeah, we're and in now Finland. I've you. Yeah. No, no, no. It's, uh, I don't know it's, where it's, it's, a, it's a treasure that was hidden by Forrest Fen, the uh, art, art dealer, uh, like 10 years ago, and people have been searching for it for the last 10 years in the Rocky Mountains, and they just found it uh, this past oh, weekend. Oh, they did find it. Wonderful. Yes, but, but he only announced that someone had found it. He didn't said the person wanted to remain anonymous, and he wouldn't tell anyone where the spot was. So essentially, yeah. that's kind of like <laughs> that was kind of in my mind here as we were talking about who built the Georgia Guidestones. Because it's like it's like, well, I guess the mystery of the fan treasure is solved, but only for one person. Everybody else yeah. is still yeah. so you know that's kind of <laughs> I'm in a I'm in a, yeah. a mental place place like that. So, but does anyone own? Like, who owns this Georgia Guidestones now? Who's responsible for the upkeep of it? Uh, when when it was completed, and I guess a short time after that, uh, one of the letters from R.C. Christian that I saw was he actually signed it over to the city so that the city has it. He just wanted to make sure that there was certain resources there to keep the upkeep of the ground. You know, it's a real small thing, and it has a mm-hmm. fence around it. I think somebody paid to put some hedges in there. Uh, but other than that, it was just want to make sure that it was kept up and that people thousands of years from now could go realize how to rebuild civilization after it went down by using the guidestones. And he thought eventually Jeez. over time everybody would come around to massive depopulation and they would come to their senses and do it. And so uh, the city considers it sort of a pride and joy. I did interview a Baptist pastor in the documentary, uh, who most of the men there actually went to that church. Uh, you know, more of a fundamentalist kind of church, but probably one of the largest number of Freemasons of any denomination. It was the one I was raised in, the denomination. And the pastor there was fairly new. He had had to fill in for one from a seminary or something. And he basically said, he says, there's nothing I can do to change what they think about some of these things because they were very powerful city fathers. Yeah. And he said, I can try to point out some of the darker elements of this stuff. And, you know, there's there's people that come through trying to do it. But, uh, you know, it's a it's a little town with secrets, with a lot of secrets. Just like when I so – one of my first if movies – If I were to I did, go there, yeah, yeah. I've, I was close to going there, and uh, I may still go there at some point. So if you go to yeah. the town, like – I have many questions here, so bear with me. Can you go and uh-huh. look at – can you? Vi- I assume you can visit it. Clearly, the, jo- the sure. Guidestones. Yep. I assume yeah, also right there's no it. like, there's no like gift shop or anything like that, right? It's just like out in the field. Well, here's what they have. The the the, the Guidestones itself, I think, are around ten miles, roughly, out of town, something like that. Um, mm-hmm. So it's out sort of looks like in a field, but it has a little chain link fence, but the gate's open. You go in there and see it. It's usually quiet. You know, it varies how many people are out there. Uh, there's nothing out there with it other than like a little placard explaining it. But in town is the, the Granite Museum, Elberton Granite Museum, and all yeah. those guys were the ones involved in the construction. Um, I don't know if some of those people have deceased since we interviewed them or not. When we did those interviews, that was 10 years ago. But um, you can get a lot of stuff about the Gadstones there. Um, we were able to get a copy of the VHS tape of the – Unveiling, and it's really rough. When you see the beginning of the documentary, you're going to see this real grainy, scratchy thing, and, you, and yeah. people are going to think, oh, no, look how bad this thing is. But it's just the video about the announcement. But you can you can get some stuff there. They have sort of like a gift shop 
I don't think they have a model. They should of the gadstones, like one for your desktop. That's what they should do. But uh, I like a you good know, mug. Conversing. But yeah, yeah, mug, yeah, something like that. But you know, where now? So, okay, so that would be the my hands on. That would be the that's the what limestone? Is, what what what? Yeah, El, what Elberton kind of stone? Granite Museum. Elberton a Granite. Museum. All right. Yeah, it's the granite. Yeah, it, well, I wouldn't granite last very long in a quarry. Yeah, All well, right. when you, uh, um, I've actually filmed in a spacesuit in a quarry, so I've spent my time in a quarry. So I had a movie that I produced that I have a contract with NBC for, where I'm in a spacesuit uh, in a rock quarry. But that's another story. But uh, yeah, uh, Elberton is the granite museum of the world, and uh, you uh, you head into town, you see that right when you come into the city limits and. Head to the Granite Museum, and they'll be glad to regale you. And they'll say, nobody knows who R.C. Christian is, and they'll never know. And I don't know <laughs> if anybody has ever seen the documentary or not. I have no idea. I don't want to see you're up you know, against those around. Dr. Future, you're up against, like, the mystery industrial complex. You're, they, yep. they, don't want, exactly. they don't want the exactly. answer out there. Does Elberton – That's they, exactly what I expect. Do they have like granite days? Do they have anything where they celebrate the the guidestones? You know, they used festival to festival or anything. I don't know if they still do. You see, the the first generation people that did it are dying off, and so mm-hmm. I don't know if they're keeping up the interest. You know, the other thing too I sense is that in some ways, even though it's sort of a tourist attraction, people come in onesies, twosies, except for cults. Cults come out there in mass. But I think they're a little disappointed that that didn't bring in big, serious money like the next Disney World. I think they had some illusions because some of the documents that I was able to get from the construction files actually were from the city fathers from the Chamber of Commerce and things, and they thought this was going to be a bonanza. They didn't even know what it was, what R.C. Christian meant with it. They didn't care. They just thought a lot of tourists are going to see this weird thing, and we're going to make a lot of money. And they put it in writing. And I don't know if it's really materialized like they thought. No, and they no, probably think less so now that it's out, you know, the story's out. Yeah, it's a really – I don't know too many people that, like, like the Georgia guys. <laughs> that's, the, that's one of those, one there of those are weird things. Yeah, yeah, I guess, yeah. I guess there are some who do, yeah. yeah. In fact, the But for the most part, they're seen as kind of sinister. You yeah. know, it's one of the it's more the sinister same, mysteries the out there. It's the same people who are okay with the message that I expose in my book, that it, it's basically sort of an Ayn Rand, uh, Darwinistic view, the strong mm-hmm. should survive, we sacrifice the weak, um, the weak have been holding our civilization down, i.e. me. Uh, it's, it's the consummate selfishness, which is really what Luciferianism is. Luciferianism is like consummate yeah. selfishness. Yeah, I mean, you've asked Anton LaVey or anybody, they'll tell you that. Um, and that's what that belief is. That belief was glorified and, and actually somehow packaged for clergy for for 100 years in my book or 80 years, and, and the guidestones represent it. And when you find these eugenics people who were tied into it, they, um, you know, they don't have any compulsion about getting rid of people. You know, there's 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 what they misnomer they call positive eugenics, where they try to breed out 
undesirables, and then there's the negative eugenics where they off people when they, you know, like what Nazis did in the 30s. And they're really fine with either. You know, well, they just they just want to get yeah. whatever they get. And so isn't that the ultimate evil? I mean, isn't that more than having a guy with uh, red horns <laughs> and a pitchfork? Um, you oh, know, absolutely. Or, or even yeah, a, an alien yeah. gray or whatever like that. An alien gray yeah, probably yeah, seems yeah, to yeah. do as much evil as some of these people. Right, right. Well, at the risk of, like, upsetting a demon in my <laughs> In my midst, yeah, uh, you know, it's more the the human human beings can be just as evil uh, or more evil than we than we imagine demons to be. Yeah. So uh, at a point, the line blurs. Where, where does the human stop and the and the demon start? It's it's like what I said at the on the back of my book. Or it may not even have that on there. Uh, in the extended write up of it, I talk about a Faustian bargain. Made with yeah. some of our religious leaders, and um, well, even some of our government leaders today. And basically, I call it a, a Faustian bargain between the religious right and them. And I said, I'm not sure which one is Faust and which one is the devil. Yeah, it's an interesting observation. It's definitely, uh, it's definitely an interesting observation. Now, has anyone? Yeah. We're seeing a lot of uh, a lot of statues and stuff being torn down and everything. And uh, yeah. Have we? Has anyone ever ever vandalized or tried to take down or take out or have the, have removed the Georgia Guidestones? Is that like what's the they, what, what about that? They had they had right before we came to film, which was a little frustrating because we were trying to get footage that looked like sort of timeless, you know, including some mm-hmm. reenactments and stuff like that. Someone had taken some kind of uh, like a resin kind of paint. And splash it up all over something that was extremely hard to take off, and they splash it up on there. They thought, I guess, that would cleanse it of its evil spirits or something by doing it, or they were just striking out against the new world order, because that's another thing they they always term the Gadstones as the Ten Commandments of the new world order. And uh, yeah. but you know they brought in experts, and in fact I think that was even talked about in the documentary. I'm going on memory, but about the painstaking effort to try to take it off. Um, since this documentary was done, somebody, I think, tried to walk off with, like, a little cube that was put in in a missing little corner or somebody put up there. Yeah, I was just going to ask it. you that. What do you know about, yeah, what do you know about that, the cube? That, you know, I, I'm not even sure if that wasn't even put in long after the Gadstones because when you look at where it went, the slot, the slot had a very important purpose to – Right, right. Uh, in the letters of R.C. Christian I have, that it – they were designed to tweak the orientation of the stones and the top. And so these slots were designed for them to adjust, uh, you know, before they were permanently in place. So they were aligned yeah, with in the celestial things me, in there. Let me just jump in here, Dr. Future, because I wrote about this, so I know the story a little while. I just pulled it up here. So what happened yeah. is there was a slot in the Georgia Guidestones and in right. 2014, someone put a little cube into the slot that fit perfectly, right. and the cube on one side had a 20, and the other side had a 14, um, yeah. so for 2014. And I don't right. know the story. I haven't looked into it since 2014 when I wrote about it. I don't know right. if they came and took it out. I don't know if that was a purposeful addition. Yeah, it was um, removed. It was removed since okay. then, and, and they went out and said, yeah, this has nothing to do with it. But, you know, there was a little 2014 cottage industry. That popped off of that, you know, sort of like fuller brush salesman. You create a need and then fill it. And so 
they wanted a story <laughs> and they put put that in there. But really, what, what I recollect, I'm going to recollection because I haven't really gone back to this. And by the way, you mentioned about writing a book. Um, uh. That's exactly the same indication I had. But the guy who was producing it with me got a little nervous about that. He was also pretty nervous about even given the name of R.C. Christian out uh, because yeah. of sensitivities and things. And I was able to win on that front, but the uh, uh, the uh, the thing about writing a book, he got real nervous about it. But, you know... Hey, you don't need him I to write a book. You've got a pen, right? Well, I mean, and, and you're right. I mean, it's not it's not one of my main priorities. The stuff I'm writing about now is what's affecting the here and now. But, you know, that whole storyline still comes up in some of my other books, because there is a there is a motto to it. Um, I mean, there is a motto that when you read when you read his book about uh, the age of reason, he, he sort yeah. of harkens back to Thomas Paine. You know, they wanted to seek the age of reason, and then it goes all the way back to uh, England. Um, Bacon was it Francis Bacon talked about this? You know, a future age of reason, and and it's really. Basically, a Darwinistic view of getting rid of anybody who doesn't fit a certain ideal. That was always intertwined into this age of reason as being freed by rationalism, which doesn't rationalize why should we keep the weak? Why should we keep the weak on? And I recognize that, you know, and, and that's where it really gets the opposite of what we know is like true faith. You know, G, uh, Darwinism and Ayn Randism says you you leave the one straggler of the herd behind and look out for the 99. Jesus says, I'm going to leave the 99 and go get the one that's lost. And that's probably the best microcosm of the two main worldviews in the world. Uh, you know, no matter what way. kind of religious moniker you put on it, those are the two camps. And you have to decide, are you going to focus just on the 99 or are you going to focus on the one? And I'll tell you for myself publicly, I'm going to focus on the one because at some time in our life, every one of us is going to be that one. And we may not be ready to get off this earth. And we better hope somebody's around who cares about, you know, people would question now whether I do anything productive or not. And that's a good question. But if productivity (laughs) is my justification for usefulness, then I'm in deep trouble and it's only going to get worse. And so that's why I got to work, look out for those folk now because. I'm going to need somebody looking out for me. And, you know, I hear that now in the COVID world. In the COVID world now, I'm I'm hearing good old Christian people that I operate, you know, around saying, uh-huh. well, you know, these people were going to die anyway. Why should we stop anything that we're doing, oh, yeah. any inconvenience yeah, of yeah. our life? Because they're going to die. And, and eventually I was told, well, you just worry too much about the weak. And and I'll have to tell you, this is someone who sees themselves as a very moral, you know, spiritual person. And I'll have to tell yeah. you, that is the bedrock of my spiritual underpinning, is looking out for the weak. If not, we don't even have civilization. If you don't have exactly. that, how can you call yourself civilized? You just have a jungle, and it's a law of the jungle. And, you know, if aliens came and saw that, and we've seen that time and time again in sci-fi, when they're like, we might as well destroy these people, they're they're just total animals when they see us at our worst that the whole definition of civilization is how you take care of the weakest people in your ranks so this is a continuing theme and and covid has just been another 2020 case in point that we have to decide are we going to be our brother's keeper 
or are we not? I mean, that was the question Cain asked in the garden, and we've never resolved that issue in humanity since then. We have to decide, are we going to be our brother's keeper, or are we not? Well, it's scary, man. We're living in scary times. That's uh, that's kind of why I brought up a whole uh, end times sort of thing. Yeah. But, you know, well, you do wonder. I, you know, I believe, well, I'm going to write a book is, on know. that, too, because every, every fool has to write a book on prophecy. And I wouldn't want to miss out on that action. But so I want to do that. But right, but right now, I almost feel like we're living in end times right now, whether it's end times or not, because people are living on edge, and yeah. people are getting split, divided. Uh, people are feeling major anxiety. We have existential decisions to make about life, how we're going to live our life, things that we never dreamed would happen of being sequestered in our home for months. Um, and just what we take for normal day-to-day life gone. You know, the economic thing is still not resolved. We haven't seen the worst of the economic peril that's going to happen. Who knows what's going to happen in November in the elections? We might have a civil war. Yeah. I don't think it's totally out of reach. We've got people in the streets now. Before this, we had people in our streets with guns in our city capitals, and they'll be playing for keeps then. And it may be in the middle of COVID, still raging, and everything else. It's gonna so, be. You know, it's gonna. Yeah, it's wild, man. The worst. It's really... The worst is yet to come, and so now's the time we're getting a little breather to decide each individually what we're made of. You know, what are you willing to die for? What What are you? What are your convictions so strong about your values that you're willing to die, or you're willing to put your own life above it? And, and we better decide because when it starts happening, it will happen really fast. And I feel like we've just been put in time out for a while to get our head together and figure out what's worth dying for. Jesus. Now you're scaring me, Dr. Future. So. Well, <laughs> well oh, my, man. my mission is done then if I scared the bejesus out of you and, and the <laughs> listeners. Then my, I well, can we've move talked on. about the movie. I want to make sure we mention this movie, the name again for people. Dark Clouds Over Elberton, the true story of the Georgia Guidestones. I'm going to watch it this weekend. I didn't get a chance to see it because Dr. Future was a last-minute guest addition to the show, and, you know, there's only so many hours in the day. Um, But I'm going to watch it. How Uh, how else could I have been It's good, though, because if I had seen it, now if I had seen it, I would have really spoiled everything. (laughs) <laughs> right. Well, so, if, if, yeah. if you would have seen it, you would have said, Mike Bennett has solved the problem. It is the solution. There is no other question. You know, you could have been a, yeah. just a good drone, given the pitch. Uh, no, you won't be in any hypnotic state when you watch it. Hopefully not. Um, but well, Jim Lydon in the chat room said he's going to drink a bottle of tequila while he watches it. So he's, well, he's really it yeah, might, it's a it real treasure hunt for easier. him. Yeah, you might be able to tolerate seeing me on camera easier if you're loaded. It it might help a little <laughs> bit because it's it, it's sort of like watching one of those uh, old movies with like the Leprechaun or something. I, I sort of oh, look yeah. a little like that. Yeah. And the but, book uh, is Two Masters and Two Gospels: The Teaching of Jesus versus the Leaving of the Pharisees in Talk Radio and Cable News. It's it really yeah. we we could have spent the whole two hours talking about that. Um, but I wanted to make sure we got into the Georgia Guidestone stuff because, you know, well, that's, that's you know, such an iconic mystery. Me, if those guys kill me after you made me out of them, I may not be back. But if they don't find me, 
I can always come back and talk some more about some of the stuff if you want some more weirdness. It's deep off the bench. I didn't even get to talk about the seances that uh, Gerald Hurd and Aldous Huxley did with Bill Wilson of uh, uh, AA and the uh, the manifestations and how the 12 steps came about from a little conjuring he did with somebody gave him in the 15th century and how the Rockefeller Association was involved in it and participated in the seances. But, you know, your audience may not be interested in any of that. So I think they would be. And, uh, yeah, I'm getting a real, like, Nancy Reagan with that psychic vibe. So yeah. it's uh, – you know what's yeah. interesting I'm is you don't not- see – you really don't see that at all anymore. Like, uh, I guess the closest thing would be like Hillary Clinton talking about UFOs and shit, but you don't really see any, any mystical, you know, they don't talk, talk about astrologers and yeah. shit anymore. So it's sort of, it's, it's sort of, can't, it's sort of quaint. It's sort of quaint. They usually repackage it into some other areas, but partly because it's become mainstream. It's not something that has a shock factor anymore. So yeah. they find other ways to do their things. I mean, ayahuasca is a big thing. You know, they got big snakes crawling around them when they take ayahuasca and DMT and and um, absinthe and all that kind of stuff. So you know, that's just the new generation's LSD. So you know, it just it just morphs. Pe- people don't want to be boring and use you know last year's psychedelic. They want to say they came up with something new that their parents didn't <laughs> use. Uh, so you know it's it's still there. There there are so many secrets about the spiritual background uh, that are yet to be released. You know Silicon Valley. You know they've they've sort of come up with a little bit of that, and that's where the Institute of Noetic Sciences uh, comes into play. And that's going to be in volume three of my my book, which should come out probably next summer. And in that, you're going to see where Silicon Valley ties in to some kind of spooky activities that are going on. And it even involves some uh, household names on the Christian religious preacher front. Uh, so you're going to find all that stuff connected. Not uh, who's, who's that? Who's that guy? I forget his name now. There's one of those like super preachers that uh, he wouldn't let people oh, live in. Oh, somebody his. you never guess. It's somebody you never guess is a household right. name, or at least the organization is. But you're not going to get a second name out of me tonight. You're you already made me feel the guts once. I want to go to one of those super churches and see what it's like there, but I'm scared. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm scared. They might they might convert you. I might be like, this they is might. a blast. I need I need to I need to go to more of these super church things. It's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen that Righteous Gemstones show? Righteous Gemstones. No, I can't. You know, if you just it's on HBO, show it's blank. really good. I I I'll have to check it out. I don't watch very much anything that's made after about 1972. I don't watch. Uh, you know, wow. like some real documentary or something. Yeah, I do miss a lot. Um, if it wasn't at the drive-in, I probably, you know, didn't care as much for it. Or if it's not on something grainy, you know, that I can have. But uh, yeah, you know, if it's a key documentary or something like that, my wife and I watch The Walking Dead. You know, it's basically a western with a, uh, you know, Walking Dead motif to it. But you know it's well yeah. done stuff. But normally I'm I've got my nose in books writing this stuff. You know I've got hey. a clamor for the two or three people who are demanding material from me. I've got to keep them happy. So, oh, so yeah. So, so I, I spend the lonely nights with this uh, with this kind of drivel. But it's going to get weirder. 
and I've got about 15 manuscripts finished, and so I'm going to start rolling these out. I'm going to try to get about every six months, get stuff that wow. I've written. But it, every, every one of them's weird. Every one of them's got disturbing stuff in it, you know. Jesus. These aren't these wow. aren't little happy happy devotionals. These are stuff that you you, you think that made you disturb. Wait till you read the next next one. So, and those are ones oh, I've drafted. So, we got well, there's a lot of stories to tell, and uh, there are some more big figures, including some major Christian religious figures that I have connections to Bohemian Grove that I'm still looking into, and uh, so there's more to tell. Exciting. All right, well, folks yeah. can keep up with what you're doing at uh, futurequake.com. Yeah. And I want uh, to I thank also, the fo- – okay. Yeah. If I could just mention the book, Two Masters and Two Gospels, Volume 1. It's an Amazon yeah. in Kindle and paperback, Barnes & Noble also in Nook and paperback, and hard copy uh, and hardcover. Uh, got a cheap hardcover there. Um, I think Kobo and iBooks have the e- e-book as well too. Um, but if you go to MikeBennettBooks.com, I'll try to keep it updated with what I'm doing or my publisher, Akribos Press, A-K-R-I-B-O-S Press. And I want to tell you, Tim, thank you so much for having me on the show. And please have me back. Oh, thanks for coming on the show, dude. I had a blast. I had a blast. Uh, I had a blast talking to you. I hope I wasn't too well, – you... I, felt, I, felt, I feel bad now. I'm like, oh, man, I was a dick. I kept making I, – I pushed – Doctor Future until he until he revealed the name, but it's like <laughs> I just yeah. it was uh, I just had to I just had to know it. I don't know something wrong with me. I, I feel like the marathon man, you know, when they yanked his teeth out in the chair. I, I feel like the neo Nazis <laughs> had me tied in the chair, but you know, I mean that in a good way when I describe it to you that way. But uh, absolutely, well, no, you know, uh, like I said, uh, I, 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 I enjoyed, I really enjoyed the, the conversation a lot. Yeah, you you extracted the most information in two hours from me that anybody could. You got an encyclopedia of everything and how my life is a waste after these two hours because you totally uh, raved a bar magnet over my head or a download from it. So <laughs> no, 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 no. That was a now lot of fun. I really appreciate guy. it. I want I want to thank yeah. the gang in the chat room tonight, Jim Lodica and Jim Vujovic. Uh Yeah. So they're going to go check out the documentary right now. I hope folks also go and check out the documentary. And, of course, the book. Uh, where is it again? Two Gods, Two Masters. Is that it? Two Gods and Two Masters? Close. Two Masters and Two, two Gospels. Two Masters and Two Volume Gospels. One. Sorry. It's what I got for standing yeah, up Jay at Michael the end of the show. Yeah, find the name on there. Yeah. Yeah, Two Masters and, uh, and Two Gospels. If you go to futurequake.com, you can just scroll down and you'll see the, yeah, uh, the book linkage. So that might be easy. And I tell you what. Even if you're not interested in reading the book, get it and give it to your parents if they hassle you a lot or relatives when you get together because it says in there basically why you have heartburn with things they keep yelling at you about, and it uses their yeah. language. So if you want to give them a hard time, just give them one of these. You don't even have to read it. Just give it to them and watch the sparks fly. There you go. All right. And uh, one more time, the movie is Dark Clouds Over Elberton, the true story of the Georgia Guidestones. People can see that on Amazon right now. All right, Dr. Mm-hmm. Future, thank you very much. I really appreciate it, brother. Oh, man, it's a pleasure to be with you. I look forward to being back again. Absolutely. Have a great weekend. Okay, you do too. Bye-bye. There you go, folks. That was Dr. Future, J. Michael Bennett, talking about his book. To... Now I close the window so I don't have it in front of me. I can't keep track of these things, folks. I can't keep track of these things. I'm getting old. 
here it is, Future Future Quake Online. So, yeah, the book, Two Masters and Two Gospels. Uh, I feel like we only scratched the surface on that one. Uh, and as he said, it's volume one of three. So this sounds like it's going to be a very expansive uh, worldview. But fascinating stuff about, about uh, I guess you could call it a conspiracy by the business folks to influence the church. And it brought us to where we are today. So hopefully we didn't offend anybody. Um, but I don't think so. And, of course, as I said, the movie... Dark Clouds Over Elberton, The True Story of the Georgia Guidestones. I'm going to check that out this weekend. Uh, sounds pretty fascinating. I am still flummoxed uh, by why this hasn't actually become the accepted canon of who built the Georgia Guidestones. So I'm, I'm, I'm baffled by that. But I think if uh, if Dr. Future wrote a book about it, maybe then it would kind of break through. It's very, 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 uh, very weird. But I guess, you know, the mystery is always more profitable than the answer. So maybe there's just a, a general pushback against solving the mystery. Anyway, with with all that said, <coughs> I want to thank everybody uh, for listening. Next week on the program, uh, we got another guy had the good fortune of meeting last year. He's super popular. Uh, people love him. People really love him, and uh, I can see why, having hung out with him. Uh, he's just a fantastic guy and uh, an encyclopedia of esoteric knowledge. Hilarious dude. Uh, he's very online, like me, so I see him online quite a bit. I'm talking about the illustrious John Tenney. Finally, we're going to get John Tenney on but all of America. Uh, I actually think I reached out to him like a long, long, long time ago. Somebody recommended him like 10 years ago uh, but we didn't connect back then but we had the, the good fortune of uh, speaking at Lauren Coleman's conference last April uh, of 2019 John Tenney will be on the program next week uh, 9pm Eastern Time for 2 hours same but all time, same but all channel you know the routine uh, and on that note, until then once again, thank you all for listening Tim and all, signing off.